Thanks. Hi, everyone. I am so happy and excited to talk to you about this today because I can actually like get in a room and geek out like Katie was saying about this and it's okay. Like I don't have to go, oh, I'm thinking it, but I'm not going to say it. So <laughs> I'm really pumped. So again, I want to see that, the, that show of hands. Who in this room is like 90% sure that they know their type? Raise your hand really big. I want to see. Okay. And who in this room is like iffy? Like you're like 50% sure, like just iffy people. Like raise your hand. I want to see it. Okay, so there's just a couple of us. Well, for me personally, I was iffy for months and months and months in my journey within the Enneagram. So I started off for a while thinking that I was a three. And then as I thought through the motivators of a three and what that actually fleshes out like as I really like started to learn the Enneagram, I realized, okay, I'm not a three, so that's not a thing. And then for a while, I thought that I was a six. And as I thought through the fear of the six and all of the stuff with the six, it was like, okay, that doesn't quite... 100% resonate. And I was like sure on these numbers for a while too. I was like telling people I was a three and telling people that I was a six. And I didn't actually learn that I was a four until I learned about the subtypes. Okay. So, and I also consequently, I also didn't learn I was a four until a late night text conversation with Katie Day. Um, <laughs> and uh, she was like asking me all of these really great questions. And so Katie uh, is amazing at typing people, so go ahead and ask her what type you are after this is over. Katie, sorry <laughs> if you have a really long line of people um, wanting to know your type, but she will geek out and love it. So anyway. I really will, but I was yelling at him. I was like, you're a four! <laughs> yeah. So it wasn't until I learned about the subtypes that I learned that I was a four. Um, so I really see the Enneagram as sort of like an onion, okay? And picture it with me, if you will. That first layer of the onion actually being your type. But as you peel back the layers of subtype, of instinct, of instinctual sequence, of the wings, of the growth and the stress points, you get to sort of more of the core and the whole onion instead of that first layer that can kind of be weird and you don't you really use it all the time anyway. Does that make sense? I mean, sure, it does fit and those stereotypes are there for a reason and it's fun to joke about them, but I wanna get us past to where we're peeling the layers back of the Enneagram. Um, so uh, just like an onion, the Enneagram can make you cry, am I right? <laughs> How many of you have actually cried over the Enneagram? I have had a session, oh my goodness, a plane ride with a Sleeping at Last al um, Atlas album that is all about the Enneagram. I bawled like a baby on that plane. There was people that were looking at me like, is she okay? Um, but, uh, you know, and just like you chop through those layers of self-awareness, of trying to understand and grow growth mindset like Katie talked about, and chop through those layers of the Enneagram, you know, most people say that you don't really know your type until it starts to really hurt a little bit. And uh, that's kind of what the Enneagram is like. So recently, I got a phone call from a friend, and she was having a really hard time, time owning her type. She's a one, but she was like, I need some additional resources, Jen. I know you know a little bit about this stuff. Um, so what, like, what, could you point me to some Instagram resources or books and podcasts and all of that stuff? So I gave her um, some additional places, but I thought as I was giving her some information on where to go to, I was like, what a good topic within the Enneagram, because a lot of people don't know about the instinctual sequence, they don't know a whole lot about the wings, they maybe don't know their subtype, so I really want to dig into some of that stuff today, because if you're like me, you may be struggling to really own your type, or like my friend that um, called me on the phone. So why talk about nuance? Again, peeling back those layers that are in the onion that is the Enneagram and helping us to expand to create space to see 
what doesn't actually just put us in those boxes, like Katie mentioned from that book, um, that box of your kind of meme slash, slash tropey type on the Enneagram, and not put other people in those boxes as well, is why I want to deep dive and talk about nuance. So this is a really, really great quote, I feel like, from Beatrice Chestnut. She wrote the 27 types of the Enneagram, uh, the complete Enneagram, the 27 types. And uh, she says, making what is unconscious conscious is the beauty of the Enneagram. And I love this because it, like, just like Katie said, it is so easy to just go, cool, I'm a four. Like, I'm just going to live in that personality. And I guess that's what, it, what I am. But really, have, taking the time to understand those things that are innate within me that I've always relied on in my personality and taking a step out of that and becoming more of a holistic version of myself is the whole point of the Enneagram. It's taking those things that are unconscious and actually making them conscious and awareness sparks that ability to move past that in personality. And I actually didn't understand that with the Enneagram for a while, but I want to get to the place personally, and I don't know if you're like me at all in this, but I want to move to the place where I bring soup to a sick person like a two does. And I want to be the type of person that can weave a, beautifully ta a beautiful tapestry of different ideas and conflicts and thoughts like a nine does. And I want to be like a seven that sort of sucks the marrow out of life and experience and gets to experience it all with joy and fullness. Or I want to be like the eight that stands up for the downtrodden, for the you know, hopeless or the person without a voice. So I don't want to just feel my feelings in a corner as a four and say, cool, this is who I am. OK, I guess I better understand it. I want to move past those things and see where I can go as a person in self-growth. So. <laughs> So uh, I, just to give you a little background on my um, uh, Enneagram background, I am just an enthusiast. I have just spent a lot of time watering my lawn um, and garden to podcasts, listening to audiobooks while organizing drawers and going on runs and just overall deep diving on the subject for probably a little over a year now. And that's not a very long time, so I'm excited to get into it deeper as time goes on as well. But my wing five has really like taken on a life of its own with this thing, and I've really like gotten into so many books and so much like deep dive and research. So I'm excited to share some of those things with you today. So why talk about nuance? Again, nuance is a really big deal when doing the work of the Enneagram, if you've heard that term. Um, and if we stop to, like short at just knowing our type, we might stop short at knowing a lot of really great nuggets and specificities within our number and ourselves and other people. So if you just stop short knowing that you're a four or you're a three or you're a two, you may not get past there's a lot more to the Enneagram than that. Um, and then also, why talk about nuance? You may be having a hard time owning or finding your number. And then with nuance as well, have you ever had the question, okay, how is it that somebody that looks completely different than me and has my same number. Has anybody ever thought that before? Like, how is it that this person could be my number? I have no idea. And as I started the Enneagram journey, I have three very, very close friends of mine that are all ones, okay? And some two of them are in this room. Um, <laughs> and uh, they could not look more different from one another. And there's also these striking personality like similarities within them, but like two of the men are in the room, one is introverted and one is extroverted. And, but they're both ones. And they, you can tell that they're both ones, but the, the, they, if they were green, okay, one of them would be seafoam green, one of them would be hunter green, and one would be Kelly green. 
But I love that because they're all still a green, but they look completely different. So if you've ever wondered why, I want to get into the nitty gritty of that. So I am a self-preservation four with a five wing. Um, my instinctual sequence is first, my dominant is self-preservation, and then my second is social. My third, or repressed, is one-to-one. And as a four, I go to a one in security and a two in stress. And you might be thinking now, gee, Jen, you're narcissistic. How do you know all of these things about yourself and why with such specificity? But I want to teach you where to go to learn about those things as well, too, for yourself, because I really do think that they help. So basic nuance contributors. OK, so I kind of came up with this. I, in all of my research and all of the reading with the Enneagram, I've never really heard these nuance contributors just broken down into one little like piece of like a podcast or information. You either like get a whole thing about the subtypes or a whole thing about the wings or whatever. But I want to just break down all of them, okay, within the Enneagram and tell you what those are, and not necessarily tell you what you're going to be, but lead you to the place where you can understand what these are and so you can go after and understand them to themselves. So basic nuance contributors, okay, there's always going to be given contributors within the Enneagram. So age is going to be a thing. Just like Katie Day said, a great place if you are in your 60s or 50s or 40s and you don't know what your type is or you're struggling to own your type, go back to what you were like when you were 20, 21, 22, and that's probably more accurate descriptor than what you are now today because you have to equate from all that growth that you've done because you, know, you have a little bit more wisdom than the, that person that's an 18-year-old. Um, so there's also that. And then... Um, gender, male or female. Then there's introverted or extroverted. That's a given contributor and how um, you can have a nuance or difference between a you yourself and another seven or whatever. Um, and I have yet to meet an extroverted five, but I do know that they can exist. Every single um, number can either be introverted or extroverted. And that's a myth, like knowing all fives are definitely introverted. And I definitely haven't met an extroverted five, but I'm not <laughs> saying that they don't exist. And same thing with sevens. I believe that there can be introverted sevens, but I have yet to meet one. And come up to me and tell me if you're an introverted seven, because I'd love to meet you. Um, but there's also socioeconomic factors. So those are all sort of given contributors. And we're not going to get into those, obviously, because they're given. But um, the, another one is instincts, and that creates subtype. And then there are, there's instinctual sequence. Then there's the wings. And then Katie talked about this a little bit, but there's the points of security or stress or points of di uh, integration and disintegration. Okay. So let's start off with what Katie talked about when she talked about her points of growth and her points of stress. And those are insecurity and stress, or they're called the growth of integration, the growth of disintegration, or they're called growth and stress. It depends on what book you read on the Enneagram. And a lot of these are true, and I'm going to point out the differences. But if you go to one place, it's going to say one thing. And if you go to another, it's going to give you a different definition. Just know that. Um, so these don't change. You can't cherry pick where you go to in growth and stress within the Enneagram. So for instance, this one is going to travel to a seven in growth, and a one is going to travel to a four in stress. And I want to point out, and this is a big myth within the Enneagram and probably teaching just coffee shop type, type talk, but where you go to in growth and stress for your number is not necessarily, especially with stress, it's not a bad thing. It doesn't always have to be a bad thing. So the stress may be a positive stress in your life, okay? And it doesn't mean that this is where you go to when you're unhealthy and this is where you go to when you're healthy. 
So that's a big misunderstanding for some people within the Enneagram. But if you get into the research, most places, not all, but most Enneagram teachers are going to teach you this is not about um, unhealth and health. So just like Katie was talking about where she goes to, so let's talk about a one really quick. If they go, just to illustrate this, if they go to a seven in growth, that may look like they're on a vacation and they feel really secure and they feel really comfortable. Maybe they're with their husband or family members or whatever, and so they're going to seven out on that vacation a little bit. And you might see them go past that typical response that they have to sort of be organized and efficient and everything and perfectionistic, and they let go and their number relaxes a lot. So that one can look a little bit more like, I'm going to taste everything on the menu, and let's take all of the pictures, and let's go to all of the places and do all of the things. So that is kind of what that looks like in some circumstances for a seven. Or maybe they're just with a really close like, group of friends, and they go out for a night, and it's just like they become a different person in some ways. Not really, but you know what I mean. Um, and then with a one and a four in stress. Now, that one could travel to a high side of a four in stress, okay? So that might look like that one all of a sudden has, is in a, a pressure intense, intense situation at work or something. Maybe it's not like you know, a really bad stressor. Maybe they're, um, they just had a baby or whatever it is. That person might get an artistic bent or maybe that one becomes a little bit more empathetic to the people around them in their life. So again, if they're traveling to the high side of this number in growth, or sorry, in stress, it's not necessarily a bad thing, which I think is important to note. Then there's also, and maybe a little bit more typical understanding of where you go to in stress, that one might look like a little bit more emotionally charged, or they might, in that stress situation, or they might look a little bit sad or depressed, or those type of things that you sort of feel like you get about a four. So there's that. So a couple of things that I just want to read off to you right here. And sorry, if you, I hope you can read too, but I have to kind of scooch over. Um, so the inner lines of the Enneagram connect the types in a sequence that denotes what each type will do under different conditions, OK? So there are two lines connected to each type, and they connect with two other types. One line connects with a type that represents how a person of the first type behaves when they're moving towards health and growth. This is called the direction of integration or growth. The other line goes to another type that represents how the person is likely to act out if they are under increased stress or pressure, when they feel that they're not in control of a situation. This second line is called the direction of stress or disintegration. In other words, different situations will invoke different kinds of responses from your personality, which I think is important to note because it, you know, that one that's going to a seven, they might do a, per, a different um, part of a seven than another one that's traveling to that in growth. Does that make sense? So it equates for nuance. We're connected on the inner lines to several other types, and we can move to these types under different conditions. The forward arrows indicate the direction of movement to what is called our stress point, which means that under certain kinds of stress, we may find ourselves experiencing more of the feelings and patterns of this other personality type. This isn't necessarily a bad thing. Having the experience of this type also can be a resource for us. For example, a type six may travel to a three and move more quickly into action. A type seven can travel to a one and become more focused and organized. Yay, Katie, there's hope. Um, but, it, but it will be stressful if we stay there too long. In the other direction, we move towards what is called our security point or heart point. This may happen when we feel safe and secure, as in a close relationship, or when we are engaged in per deep personal growth with our type, type structure relaxes, which I think is important to note there. 
This is usually a positive experience, usually, allowing us to integrate some of our qualities of our security point, which can balance and mediate our own type. But we may also encounter new challenges at this point. The theory is useful since it describes states and experiences as we travel to our connection points on the Enneagram, but teaches, but each person needs to see how this works in their own experience. The patterns are there, but we don't always fit the pattern completely. Does that make sense? I hope that helps everybody sort of line out that and what that looks like. Okay, so let's move into, so we've talked about the points of growth and the points of stress, and now let's talk about instinct and what that, those are, and this is where I really dove in and figured out that I was a four, so I'm pretty passionate about this. Don't forget when thinking about instincts that we are animals, and think of our instincts as our animal instinct to, to do what we need to do to survive, okay? So we each have, everybody has this, a dominant instinct, a secondary instinct, and a repressed, or one that you're asleep to. So one comes naturally, the first one comes really naturally. Our secondary instinct is our secondary, it's kind of in the background, and then one we really need to work on to even express, but it's there. Um, instincts are actually faster than our thoughts. So it's a big deal to know what instinct you are. Um, and our instincts carry our personality a long way, which can equate for how three people who are all ones look a lot different from one another. So these are the three instincts. There's first self-preservation, which I am. There's social. And then there is one-to-one -one or sexual. And I'm going to just give you a definition of each of these. But real quick, again, remember, these instincts are driven by priorities or a limited view of what we need to do to survive, OK? So self-preservation, you burn warm. You like cozy blankets in the house. You don't stand at concerts, at least I always think about my feet every time I'm at a concert for longer than like 15 minutes. I'm kind of going, I want to sit down, but I'm going to have fun. Like I went to an M83 concert a couple years ago and the whole time I danced, so it's not always true. But sometimes, like, I'm looking for a chair. Um, so, <laughs> and I love concerts. I love music. Anyway, I'm a four. Um, so attention is often inward into the meeting of physical needs, your environment, comfort, food, home, shelter, nest building. It's a little bit more structured and organized of a person. Sometimes can inspire being a bit more controlling. Never. Um, and maybe a little bit more anxious, but also a little bit more warm and friendly. People who have this as their dominant instinct are preoccupied with the safety, comfort, health, energy, and well-being of the physical body. In a word, they are concerned with having enough resources to meet life's demands. They might have active social lives and a satisfying intimate relationship, but if they feel their self-preservation needs are not being met, they still tend to not be happy or at ease. In their primary relationships, these people are nesters. They seek domestic tranquility and security with a stable, reliable partner. So that's self-preservation. Social, these folks burn cool. There is a structured way of sharing, like in a circle. The misconception here is that everyone is an extrovert, and that is not true. Everyone gets a chance to share. You're a citizen. You're mindful of the group. You maintain many friendships, a strong sense of social responsibility. Just as many people tend to miss, and this is really important when thinking if you're a social or not, just as many people tend to miss and identify themselves as sexual types because they want one-on-one -on -one relationships, many people fail to recognize themselves as social types because they get the false idea that this means always being involved in groups, meetings, or parties. If self-preservation types are interested in adjusting the environment to make themselves more secure and comfortable, 
Social types adapt themselves to serve the needs of the social situation they find themselves in. Social types are highly aware of other people, whether they're intimate situation or in group. They are also aware of their, how their actions and attitudes are affecting those around them. Moreover, sexual types see, seek intimacy. Social types seek personal connection. They want to stay in a long-term contact with people and be involved in their world, okay? So that's social. So lastly is the one-to-one, -one, and there's a lot of misconception with this too, and you can easily think you're one-to-one -one even though you're not. So these folks burn hot. They love eye contact. Many people originally identify themselves as this type because they have learned that the sexual types are interested in one-on-one -on -one relationships, but all three instinctual types are interested in one-on-one -on -one relationships for different reasons. So this, uh, but all three instinctual types are interested, wait, I just said that. So this does not distinguish them. The key element in sexual types is an intense drive for stimulation and constant awareness of the chemistry between themselves and others. Sexual types are immediately aware of the attraction or lack thereof between themselves and other people. Further, while the basis of the instinct is related to sexuality, it's not necessarily about being engaged in the sexual act. They are the most energized of the three types and tend to be more aggressive, competitive, charged, and emotionally intense than self-pres or social. Sexual types have an intense energetic charge in their primary relationships or else they remain unsatisfied, okay? So you are probably wondering which one you are right now. And it really can be hard to nail down which of the three instincts you are. Um, and what really helps is to take a test. It's online using the EnneagramInstitute.com and it's called the Ready Instinctual Variant, okay? So that'll help you get to the place where you understand which one, because it's really easy if you're, in, if you're extroverted to think, oh, I'm totally a social, but that may not be the case. Or it may be, you know, I'm, oh, I'm, it's kind of easy sometimes, for, or it was easy for me to figure out that I'm self-pres just because of my feet. I'm just kidding. Um, but uh, but it, is, it is interesting when you get into it. I'm still not sure that I, my repressed is one-to-one, -one, and sometimes that makes sense to me, and I'm still digging through that, if that makes sense. So take a test um, on the instinctual variant, is what it's called, um, in some circles. And then go through the subtypes of your number to see what fits. There's some really great resources out there that explain all of the subtypes, and they go through them. There's a really great podcast on the liturgists um, on the subtypes, and it goes through in I think like three hours, all of the 27 different types, because there's 27, there's not nine, guess what? It gets more complicated. Um, so uh, if you are an introvert, you can also be social dominant. I just want to highlight that again. And then this can, the instincts really account for counter type and mistype, and I'm going to get into that in a minute. But if you're having a hard time owning your number, it may be that you're a counter type based off of your subtype, and I'm going to get into that. Um, so in a second, but first I want to talk about instinctual sequence. Okay, so what is instinctual sequence? It's a nuanced contributor again, and that's the sequence of what your dominant instinct, your secondary, and your repressed instinct are. And mine is a four, is, you know, looks different than Michelle's, which equates for why we have different personalities um, in quite a bit. So, you know, whatever it is, you, everybody has their own set of dominant, secondary, and repressed. So, I'm not gonna get into the weeds with that too much, but I do think it is helpful to know what your instinct is and figure that out, because knowing your sequence helps you to know what you need to work on. If something's secondary, for me, public speaking is secondary, I'm social second, or owning like a responsibility at work where I'm like in charge of a group, 
I have to do that all the live long day for my job, but I've had to work at getting to the place where I'm comfortable with that and comfortable with public speaking. And then, you know, don't let your dominant instinct steal the show. Remember, these things are innate within us so, so much that your instinct is faster than your thought. So if my instinct is self-preservation, I might forget sometimes that Zach needs food too um, because I'm giving myself, like, or I'm getting myself a slice of cake. And to be honest, as a self-preservation, I'm thinking about my own needs. So I'm going to get myself the slice of cake, but not think about if Zach needs one. Now, as a mother, I don't do that anymore, especially because I have to always get food for my kids. But <laughs> it's also important for me to know, as a self-preservation, to chill out a little bit when things aren't in order. So I want to know what my dominant instinct is and get to the place where I'm actually thinking through that on a regular basis. And then, for whichever one is your oppressed, work on it. Like, take a, a little bit and think it through and work on it. For example, those that are asleep to self-preservation actually might lose their keys and their iPhones, um, quite, or their cell phones. I just automatically went there. Anyway, um, on a regular basis, or actually put themselves in harm's way. And there's a little bit of teaching that I've heard of what it looks like to be social repressed and what it looks like to be one-to-one um, uh, -one repressed as well, which is really fascinating, but don't have time to get there. So, okay, what is subtype? So that is your type. So if you're a seven um, and then you are a social seven, you would be a social seven, okay? So that is your type and your dominant instinct put together. And I want to illustrate this really quick by going through to see how very, like, there's so many variations of each number because there's three different, you know, you could be either a self-pres, a, a social, or one-to-one. -one. So each of the types has three subtypes. So there's actually 27 types. But to illustrate how this makes you so different from other sevens or whatever number you are, I want to go through each of the subtypes of a seven just to illustrate it because I've studied this one a lot because of my husband. So I'm like, I've been trying to figure out which one he is. Um, I know now, but... Okay, so the self-preservation seven, the Gorman. This energized seven is a great networker gathering a family of close supporters and motivated by wanting the best for everyone. They love the good things of life and may risk becoming inter interested in pleasure-seeking, self-interested in pleasure-seeking. This subtype is generally good at getting what they want. They need to have fun and feel safe, but also may be good at rationalizing and defending whatever they want to do. So PS, every... Um, so within every subtype within a number, one of them is going to be countertype, which we're going to get into in the next slide. Then one is going to be like more of your stereotypical, okay, like seven. And then another one is going to have like a one-off type of a thing to it. And each of the numbers have this. It's not fixed. So not every countertype is always going to be the self-preservation or the social. It sort of jumps around based off of the number. Um, but it is really fascinating once you get in. So, so the countertype of the seven is actually what Katie is. Um, a social seven, and so is my husband. And that is the countertype of the number. So as you read this, think about the, the tropes that you have in your mind about a seven, and actually like, think about it, because this isn't really fit in some ways. And it is the countertype. So this countertype acts against the passion of the gluttony that characterizes the seven, tending to mistype with the Enneagram too. They are generous and have strong desire to be of service to create a better world. They will sacrifice their own needs to serve the needs of a group or person they support. They can be judgmental regarding selfishness in themselves or in others and hope to be appreciated for their sacrifice. And there's a long, like, you can get into the weeds with that as well and understanding it. But my husband's a social seven, 
And it is, it's fascinating to me how he works against his pa passion of a gluttony. And for instance, myself, I'm the self-preservation four, which is also a countertype, and I work against my passion of my en envy. So you don't actually see me being envious of things. I'm just on, like, I basically just endure or long suffer through that envy because I'm not gonna tell you about it and wear my heart on my sleeve like a typical four, but as a countertype, I'm gonna work against that going after the thing that I'm envious about. So same with the seven here. They're gonna, actually a large amount of social sevens have tiny houses, according to people. So they're like the tiny house people that I'm like, I'm gluttonous, but I'm gonna just reduce it all down to the bare bones and that's what I'm gonna do. Um, so, and my, my, my husband is like, totally, anyway, I won't get into that. Um, <laughs> So uh, the one-to-one, -one, the adventurer, and so this is more of, I think, I think it's like more of the Hallmark 7. Um, suggestibility works in both ways. This subtype can be easily influenced by the attraction of new ideas. Squirrel, um, adventures of people falling into a state of fascination or entertainment. The one-to-one -one 7 also has a great power of suggestion and can use personal charm to lead people into a new paradigm, a new purchase, or a new relationship. So I hope going through that kind of helps you understand those differences with the subtypes. So why is it important to know your subtype? With the four and the six in particular, it's important to note that there's three subtypes within those two numbers actually look like three different numbers on the Enneagram. They're so different. So especially with the six and with the four. Um, and AKA, this accounts for a lot of mistyping, like me thinking I was a three for a while and for a six for a while, it's because I'm a self-preservation four. Beatrice Chestnut, who actually wrote the um, complete Enneagram, the 27 types, she dedicated her book to self-preservation's fours because they actually look like a completely different number on the Enneagram, which is why it took me so long to figure out my number. So there are 27 types instead of uh, nine meme-like types, which I talked about, and it counts for nuance, especially if you take into the fact um, of instinctual sequence on top of that, and that's why there's so many different shades of green. So what about the wings? Okay, um, what they are and what they are not. Okay, so the wings are e on either side of your number. You can't cherry pick these either. If you are a three, you either have a three, a two wing or a four wing or maybe both, but you can't decide like, I don't like those, so I'm gonna be a seven and a nine. That's not the case. So, um, you, so it's the other uh, on either side of your number and with a nine, that's gonna be the one or the eight, okay? I didn't forget about the nuts. Um, <laughs> but there are uh, lots of conflicting information about the wings. So if you really dig into like different Enneagram institutes and there are a billion, they all have something different to say on the wings. So I wanna tease that out just a little bit to give you some information on that. But your wings can really act as a shield for you, okay? So I'm gonna take myself as an example. My five wing is my dominant wing. But I'm gonna use that in a, as a shield in social situations pretty often, um, especially like I could see myself at, in my early 20s using that as a shield of I need personal, like if I'm like hanging out too much with people, I need to be alone, I need to go you know, chill out a little bit, I need sp space and time and take a lot of that. And then as I've grown up, I've realized a lot of my five wing comes out in social situations where if you talk to me at a party, chances are I'm probably gonna talk to you about something I've researched, something I listened to in a podcast. Um, people that are like in my life know that this is true probably on a regular basis and I'm becoming much more aware of it as time goes on. Like, I will probably talk your ear off about something that I have recently known because I don't wanna be out of the knower. I wanna have something um, interesting to say which is hard to admit, but true. Um, 
Then also, but the, so that's like more of my dominant wing, but it also used the three quite a bit as a shield, particularly in work situations for me because I have to go to a lot of conferences, I have to speak in front of large groups that I've never met them before, different situations, and I see that three wing coming out, man, and I know when it's there. Like, I can see like myself sort of name dropping sometimes, or I can see myself in like um, standing in front of groups, like I've done a little extra work to make myself look you know, perfect or like really, uh, you know, into my clothing, all of that stuff, which is sort of a four thing too. But, um, but I can be more three E um, in my workspace. So I use both of those, but I use those as a shield within my personality. And you probably do the same with your wings. So these wings, I really believe, and not everybody agrees with this, but a lot of Enneagram teachers are going to teach you that they are fluid. So it's interesting because a lot of us are coming here today with the knowledge of, oh, I'm a five wing six, or I'm a seven wing eight, or whatever. And yes, that's important, but it's much more probably important that you say, I'm a self-preservation five, or I'm an eight, I'm a social eight, to distinguish because that's not fluid, because I'm not constantly doing this with my instinct. Remember, those instincts are way faster than our thoughts. Um, so some say that you have one that dominates with your wing, and other people say that you don't. You just have both. So I want to get into a couple of different spheres of thought here, just so you can kind of see. I'm totally getting in the weeds. I hope you guys are liking this. Okay, um, around the circle of the Enneagram, we find ourselves between the neighboring points. These are often called the wing points, and they have a strong influence on our own experience. We have both wings, but most people can identify a predominant wing, which is part of our personal style and creates some of the variation between the types. For example, a type nine with a strong eight wing will appear more like an eight in, like in style, grounded and assertive, while a nine with a strong one wing may look more like a type one, organized and correct. However, they still have the basic nine personality structure. The wings can serve as resources to moderate or empower our own type, but can also serve their own, like create their own challenges when we fall to the low side of this neighboring type. This is from the Enneagram Institute. There is disagreement among the various traditions of the Enneagram about whether the individuals have one or two wings. Strictly speaking, everybody has both. Um, in the restricted sense that both of the types adjacent to your basic type are operative in your personality, since each person possesses potentials of all nine types. Okay. Observation of people leads us to conclude that while the two-wing theory applies to some individuals, most people have a dominant wing. In the vast majority of people, while the so-called second wing always remains operative to some degree, the dominant wing is far more important. And I really like this from Beatrice Chestnut, and I've really adopted this as I've kind of gotten into the research with wings and what they mean and what they don't. I don't believe in wings as subtypes, is what she says. Wings are more developmental opportunities than accurate descriptors. I think we are flavored by both wings. By definition, each type is kind of a mixture of both wings. You can be more conscious of one than another, which I think kind of debunks some of the things that we've talked about in coffee shop conversation, at least whenever I started with the Enneagram. And then this is an interesting theory. This is from Richard Rohr. He's in the camp that you can sort of have a midlife crisis and switch wings, um, your dominant wing. In the first half of life, usually one of the wings is developed. One of the tasks for the second half of life is to turn the other underdeveloped second wing. Even people who know nothing of the Enneagram do this unconsciously. And then I really like this from Ian Morgan Cron, who wrote The Road Back to You. He said this in a podcast, and he was talking about wings. And he said, I'm just always careful not to be an Enneagram fundamentalist, especially when it comes to wings. Um, so I thought that that was helpful. 
So again, my take on the wings, I think wings can be fluid, sometimes calling on one circumstance to make a person lean on one more than another. When you're talking about the Enneagram, you're always going to talk about probabilities. Nothing's a guarantee, though it's probable you're probably going to have a dominant, and that's from E. Morgan Cron. And I totally see myself, like I said, using those wings as shields in my personality. And I think it's true that one can dominate and flavor our personality more than another. But I really believe that wings, subtype, instinctual sequence, points of stress and growth all equate for the nuance within the Enneagram. So what does it mean to do the work? Have you guys heard that you know, term before? And I, I kind of scratch my head. I'm like, that is so ethereal. I have no idea what they mean by that. So I wanted to talk, tease that through a little bit. What does it mean to do the work of the Enneagram? What can you do with all of this information? So first, learn your type and learn what your passion is and when does it take the wheel within your personality, okay? Where do you go to in security and stress and really learn those numbers as well. And then learn the numbers of the people around you without typing them, but it really helps to know if you have a husband, what that is, best friends, co-workers, that kind of thing. It's really helpful to know what their numbers are and start to empathize with them a little bit more by knowing more about their type. And then I really think that this is important. Account for how it feels in your body to when your type faces your passion. There's a pull that actually happens in your body, and we haven't discussed this yet, but if you're not aware, each of the numbers have their own passion, or sort of sin, I guess you would call it, um, within themselves. So for mine, mine as a four is envy. And I know now through self-awareness and through studying the Enneagram, when that envy button gets pushed inside of me, I know what that feels like. And now I can turn that dial back. It feels like a preoccupation in my thoughts or an intensity inside of me. And I get a little bit of a fuzzy brain. And that's all that I can like feel and see for a couple hours. And so I, I start to dial that back and be aware of it. And by being aware of it, I can dial that back quite a bit and know that that's something that I'm going to you know, go through and work through as a person. What does it mean to do the work? Learn your instinct, your instinctual sequence, and your subtype. Again, I can't emphasize how important that is and what a game changer it is to really understanding yourself and the others around you. And then uh, learn your potential wing situation. I say that because... You know, there's so many different theories on that one. Um, and then uh, grow, learn to grow in self-awareness in such a way that you're not always on autopilot within your personality. And I think Katie has said that, and I sort of said that in the beginning. I don't want to just stick with a four feeling my feelings all of the time. I want to get to the place where I'm bringing soup to the, the sick person and standing up for the you know, um, repressed and doing all of those things and not just saying, that's for you, but this is for me. But the whole point of the Enneagram is to be the person that you are always meant to be. So... I think that that's it. Um, the references and places to go to learn more if you want to jot any of these down. There's the EnneagramInstitute.com. That's a f uh, lots of free resources. There's the EnneagramWorldwide.com. Also lots of free resources. The Liturgist podcast that I mentioned with Annie Diamond for subtypes is excellent. It's about three episodes long. But if you want to learn more about the subtypes, that's a quick deep dive into all of it. And then if you want a dense dive into everything, and my favorite book on the Enneagram personally is The Complete Enneagram by Beatrice Chestnut. You can check that out on Hoopla for free if you've got the app throughout the, through the library and there's an audio version and a reader version. And if you, so it's like, I, if you looked at, I don't even, I have never looked at the actual book, but it's probably like that thick. So I would, what I would do to start off is just go through your number because it's probably going to be the densest resource on your number, like the most information expanded. It's not going to be a paragraph. It's going to be like pages. And then 
pages on your, uh, the different subtypes within your number. And then I've like looked at my husband's and my, some of my friends and all of that stuff and really used that as a resource. And then the Typology podcast by Inwork and Cron is excellent. It's like more of a simplistic understanding of the Enneagram in some ways. It really breaks it down into nuts and bolts that we can really understand easily. Um, and I love his perspective. I love what he has to say. And he's got a lot of interesting guests on there. And then the Sleeping at Last album, Holy Cow, Atlas, Dear Lord, as a four, it's made me cry a couple times. Um, but thanks for being with us today. I hope this was helpful and not too much information. So yeah, and I'll let Michelle come back and give us the plan for the rest of our time together. So thank you. Holy cow! Hey guys, Michelle here. If you liked what was talked about on this podcast, let us know. We want to hear from you and get your feedback. Also, we kind of want to know who you are. We know we have listeners from all over the world, so please reach out. You can find us by searching The Bravery Board on Facebook or Instagram, or by going to our website, thebraveryboard.com. Also, please give us a rating in iTunes. Yeah, we know it kind of takes a few minutes, but it helps us spread the word. And we're kind of all about this message of thriving. As always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for being you. You guys are awesome.